This is a conversation with Dr. Robert Moss. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Uh, so you describe, you call your approach uh, clinical biopsychology. Correct. And the actual reason that I actually did that was back in uh, 1984 when this model emerged, when I was teaching neuropsychology, was to try to separate it out from clinical neuropsychology uh, which is actually directed toward more assessment and, in many cases, treatment of brain injury or brain dysfunction. And uh, my whole area of interest has always been applying a brain model to the normal intact brain and then the psychological problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, what are some ways in which we could have a sense of what it's about? Well, I guess uh, one of the best ways to kind of look at it is one of the ways I typically will explain it to my patients during conceptualization. And the way that I typically would do that is I'll first start out talking about the physiological reactions, and then I get into talking about the organization uh, of the brain, particularly right and left hemispheres. And, of course, uh, the, the whole idea is that I've treated so many chronic pain cases, psychophysiological cases, cardiac cases, and so forth, that I always like to have that direct tie-in in terms of the physical effects that we see tied to stress and negative emotions. Uh, and the way that I typically will do that is just, again, the fight-or-flight system, you know, this wild, dangerous animal about to attack, and all these things cut on in my body. And we talk about the sympathetic nervous system activation, the increased heart rate, decreased blood flow to the gut, uh, the shaky, jittery feeling, release of adrenaline, uh, those kinds of things. And one of the keys there, as I'll explain just uh, a moment, I'm sure, is in terms of the fact that we can many times have those activated directly from the cortex, uh, particularly the right posterior uh, cortex, uh, based upon memories and those things, and the person be actually verbally unaware of the activation of that and how that's happening. So, uh, but one side, just so just, touch, uh, just uh, uh-huh. so in a way, in what you're saying, there's already the part that part of the treatment uh, is also giving the patient that uh, that framework. Uh, exactly, that's uh, typically done. To, I actually, when I was in practice, I was pretty efficient in terms of getting information and conceptualizing many times in the same session. Uh, when I taught it to students and how to do this thing, we always break it out. We do the assessment the first session. Uh, it's somewhat structured in terms of the information we're gathering, but, of course, we inform the patient or client, if you will, uh, in terms of how we're going to do this so that they don't feel like we're cutting them off or things. But the conceptualization is to explain how all the things have evolved based upon their own personal histories, uh, based upon the current factors that are going on, uh, to actually create the situation in terms of what they're dealing with. And in the process of presenting the conceptualization, uh, we're teaching the patient, we're giving them a new schema in terms of a cognitive behavioral terminology mm-hmm. uh, to understand what is going on. But we're also basically teaching them, uh, you know, or, you know, this is what we're going to be doing in treatment, uh, that we're going to be addressing these particular issues. If it's a past negative emotional memory kind of thing, uh, we're going to explain to you how that evolved, why that is there, and then how we're going to address it in treatment. Uh, if you have loss issues, we briefly explain, or I will briefly explain, about what leads to the depressive state, the grieving state, and things like that tied to those loss issues. Or if you have an ongoing negative stimulus kind of thing, like a pain problem, that kind of thing. So we actually talk about current factors, past factors, as well as loss issues, all evolving to create, for most of the clients that I've seen, uh, whatever their current uh, emotional mood state may be, whether it's anxiety, depression kinds of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
so, yeah, from the very get-go, we're actually talking about the fact that this, this is understanding, and so the person can not only hear logically what we're talking about, but hopefully we present enough information imagery-wise they can get a picture in their mind of the whole process here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so again, that's it. And then, uh, as I say, the, the first step is is in terms of explaining the differences between the two hemispheres and basically how they process information. Uh, the left side uh, being a very detailed processing unit and therefore being slower in processing speed, but the left side of the brain then controlling our ability to have spoken language and understand spoken language our ability to read, to write, to do careful planning, those things. Mm-hmm. And then the right side, on the other hand, being a much faster processing uh, unit, uh, but by virtue of being faster, it cannot get all the details. It gets the overall scheme of things. And so then being involved in things like uh, music appreciation, melody patterns, uh, mechanical tasks, putting things together, taking them apart, uh, finding a way, navigating. But very importantly, the right side is going to process the nonverbal emotional components. Uh, if you can, I think about the way we communicate emotions to one another is through things like our facial expressions, uh, our body language, uh, intonations in the voice, and that lacks any great detail so the right side can analyze it effectively. Yeah. Uh, so basically what you're saying is the right side, right back side processes emotional information coming in, right front side programs in my own behavioral nonverbal uh, patterns, while the left back side allows me to understand the spoken language and the left front side allows me to do my own speaking talking kind of thing in terms of language. And, and of course, the uh, advantage when they communicate harmoniously and what happens when there is less communication. Well, yeah, and that, that's going to be something. In fact, uh, when you start looking at one's history in terms of where they've come from, uh, not only does side process the information differently, side is going to store its own memories for the functions it controls. And that's a real key thing there in that uh, for example, if I learn a new word, that information is stored on the left side of the brain, and if I use that, I'll use the left side to explain it. If I form a new nonverbal emotional memory, uh, that is going to be stored on the right side of the brain. And so anytime, we say, for example, we're dealing with a current-day situation, both sides of the brain taking the same information at the same time, process the information semi-independently and differently, and compare against different memories in storage, so the end result is, as many times, one side, the left side, come out with one solution or interpretation to what's going on, and the right side can have a different or even opposing interpretation or solution. In that case, I can verbally think one way about the situation and yet emotionally feel differently about that same situation. Mm-hmm. And that's that conflict that you're referring to, a conflict between what the verbal thinking aspect on the left is versus the emotional feeling aspect of the right. Right, and so that... And that- that conflict is going to translate into a sense of uh, lack of harmony or congruence. Correct. Uh, usually, most uh, the patients that I've seen is it's going to be basically perceived as an internal conflict, as compared to if left and right thinking, emotion are aligned, a feeling of internal peace or calmness. Yeah, yeah, and um, and uh, you have. Um, an approach that says when there is an encounter, and including a dialogue between a client and a therapist, mm-hmm. there are four minds involved, and that has an impact Correct. on how that conflict can be processed in therapy. Right, and that's one of the things when I've done training before is to kind of give, just to kind of conceptualize, or even talking with clients, 
if you understand that in this given room, if there's two of us sitting here, there are actually four separate minds interacting. Uh, I have my right and left uh, sides, basically, uh, that are there, and you have the same thing. And it's so easy many times for us to understand that we can verbally communicate with that other person, but that's the left side of my brain communicating with the left side of the brain of the other individual. Uh, there are many times, uh, and people, or therapists, I'm sure, are quite aware of this, that I can emotionally communicate all kinds of things, and so can the client, uh, that many times I may be verbally unaware of uh, in terms of my facial expressions, the intonations in my voice, body language kinds of things. Uh, and so actually within a therapy situation uh, and process variables and things like that, the more basically I, the therapist, have my uh, verbal thinking and emotional stuff aligned, the more I can communicate with that client uh, of consistency, both in terms of heartfelt kinds of things that I'm saying in addition to the words that I'm communicating. Uh, and obviously that kind of thing can be a great assistance in terms of establishing the inappropriate therapeutic milieu kind of thing to allow process to, to, to occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are obviously a lot of components uh, that we you know, that are involved in terms of it. And as I say, one of the things is, is that in the very first session, explaining, uh, and for anybody who follows the systems approach and understands that kind of thing, uh, obviously we're all a product of our own past uh, in terms of the family situation in which we were reared, uh, the social situation, schools, those kinds of things as we interacted with others. And the entire process is such that we're continuing to form memories as we kind of go through that kind of determine, I guess one of the best ways to look at it is people very quickly pick up on the fact that we have a native verbal language. An example would be, uh, if I'm doing training, it's kind of like I say, how many people here speak Chinese? And most of the time, people are going to say nobody because it's kind of like, you know, that's not a language with which they're familiar. And you ask if they speak English, and the answer is yes. Well, why do you speak English and not Chinese? And you know, it's kind of like it's common sense. Well, of course, you're not brought up in an English culture, and everybody spoke English, and that's the language that I learned. Mm-hmm. But people have more difficulty conceptualizing in the right hemisphere, we develop a native emotional language. The terms that basically this determines what feels positive, negative to us based upon the memories that we've stored, uh, and then also in terms of how we behave and react. In this native emotional language, would kind of translate into interpersonal behavior patterns or personality, if you will. Yeah. Personality being programmed in from the right frontal area that controls the expression of the emotional kinds of things and so forth. Uh, and so we have a native verbal language or native emotional language and the client understanding kind of how this develops, attachment issues early on and things like that. Uh, so again, uh, one of the things in treatment that we do is we talk about uh, particularly if we're dealing with past negative emotional memories tied to relationships, uh, mother issues, father issues, sibling issues, past relationships of spouses and so forth, is that many times one component of the emotional restructuring process that I use is to explain to the client why this person's behavior was as it is. Yeah. Uh, and this is where I've done... Uh, I've referred to them in there as givers and takers, if you will. So maybe maybe to slow down a little bit, maybe we can spend a little sure. more time on um, that part, you know, that native uh, emotional language. And okay. I think that um, the, it, it, you know, you speak in terms of memory reconsolidation and saying that we tend to see it more in the verbal area 
but not see it as much as the same process operating in the emotional area. And maybe that, that might be, um, uh, you know, we could maybe talk a little more about that and how this applies to emotional restructuring. Okay. Well, in terms of, uh, yes, we, we do things all the time with the left side, the verbal thinking side. And then when we do the same thing on the right side, we get a shift or a change in emotional reaction as opposed to a change in how I'm verbally thinking about something. Uh, and the whole concept of memory reconsolidation uh, is actually synonymous with the same things we do every day with the left side. An example would be, uh, let's say, uh, you have new information presented about some kind of uh, subject, and you have not had that information presented to you before, and all of a sudden you can now add that new information in verbally, and you can gain a whole new perspective in understanding something. Uh, so now I, ca- I can learn a new model, for example, like we're talking about the model that I use, well, if I now give an appropriate explanation to, to the level that the person is going to comprehend it, uh, then they many times then will find, oh, that, that makes sense. I never thought about it that way. Uh, and that aha kind of experience verbally happens all the time, and this is you're reconsolidating those verbal memories mm-hmm. by adding in new information. You have a new perspective. Uh, and I would say that the, the front side of the brain is involved in all the action that we do, and so that occurs on the left front side of the brain. On the other hand, when we start talking about emotional memory reconsolidation, we're talking about using the frontal lobes on the right side uh, and basically developing then new perspectives or a new understanding in terms of this same kind of thing. Uh, there was a very interesting article, for example, that was done just in terms of using exposure procedures in which they were doing fMRI work, uh, and they were just they had individuals who were phobic of spiders, and they did simple exposure kinds of things and found that during the acquisition or the improvement that they had an increase in activation in the right frontal lobe, Uh, and the person therapeutically showed the improvement that they had less anxiety apprehension uh, tied to seeing the stimulus of the spider and so forth. So you're getting, in this case, the activation in the right frontal area, uh, and if you kind of think about it, I'm forcing myself to kind of sit here and watch this, but I'm exerting a feeling of power and control. I'm actually feeling more control in terms of my being able to do this. And so the end result is is that then after I've done that, the next time I see that presentation of the spider picture or the spider itself kind of thing, then I don't show the same degree of anxiety or the physiological reaction or the perceived anxiety. Right, and so and then what your your the fMRI shows is that the learning has occurred at the uh, right brain level, and it's not it's not verbal learning. This is the experience, that is emotional correct. experience. Correct, and that's the whole concept behind all the processing through of things, the uh, exposure procedures, uh, these kinds of things, is you're actually, within, theoretically based on the model that I'm using, you're seeing an activation in the right frontal area and the person is developing, and we haven't talked, uh, the whole concept is is that the, the basic unit that's involved in terms of all this cortical processing is called a cortical column, uh, but you're actually forming new columns in the front frontal lobe there in these or action columns, basically meaning that they basically are the ones involved in my behavioral expression of things. And so basically I feel more in control at that point in time and I feel less apprehension and anxiety. Well, maybe do you want to say a little bit more about these columns? 
Well, uh, if you kind of think about it, uh, people are more familiar with computer terms like bits, a binary unit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we talk about the bits that are there. It's either on or off kind of thing. And it's the same kind of concept that I'm using here at the cortical level. Uh, let's say, for example, and we'll probably talk about somatosensory stuff, feelings of touch, movement, those kinds of things. Uh, when they arrive uh, in the brain, they arrive uh, right behind what's referred to as the central sulcus in the parietal lobe. That's uh, the primary receiving area in terms of the sensation. Uh, and what happens there is, is that theoretically, is you have a column activated for each of the points on your skin or things like that that are touched. Uh, that if People have seen in introductory psychology this homunculus. Uh, this is that homunculus that you kind of have your whole body parts and things like that aligned on the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, uh, you have a sensory homunculus and a motor homunculus that basically uh, that you can kind of see. So it's kind of like a point-to-point kind of thing. And so the information that arrives at the cortex is an exact replica to a large extent of what's existing on the body or in terms of what I hear, it's an exact representation tonotopically in terms of the frequency or in terms of the visual input, it's going to be a point-to-point thing in terms of exactly what my visual field is. So when it arrives at the cortex, each of these points is going to activate a column if if the sensory information comes in. And then basically when those columns are activated, then they send out their information, and when their information crosses, becomes the, uh, another column. So it's, this is how learning and memory actually occur. So that more or less then, let's say, for example, if I have a somatosensory memory, uh, and we'll let's say traumatic memory, for example, of somebody holding my wrist or something like that, and it was tied to a trauma that occurred with me, then what happens is, is that when my wrist is actually held by someone, it activates then the columns in the somatosensory area, which in turn reactivate the memory tied to the situation. Uh, and so therefore, we're just simply talking about a mechanism by which, you know, these bits or binary units of information are activated. And for each one that we have on the backside of a sensory uh, column, you're going to have a corresponding action column in the frontal lobes that controls my action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like uh, in terms of the frontal columns tied to what I'm speaking to you right now, those are located in the in Broca's area, and people are perhaps familiar with that term, but it's basically, if you kind of look at where it's located, uh, it's going to be uh, sort of in the temporal area, uh, kind of corresponding to right before you get to where my eye would be and things like that in the temple kind of thing. So that's going to be the area where I form those action columns tied to being able to say words or to plan my saying of the words. And this is what I refer to as the verbal interpreter. This area in the left frontal area is actually when I'm talking in my head, that's where the action's going on. Mm-hmm. And so and so it's going to have more access to uh, the information that's coming from the same area of the brain. Exactly, and that's the whole idea of consciousness. Most people kind of think about consciousness being a verbal awareness of what's going on, and that's really a pretty poor <laughs> explanation of consciousness because we're just talking about one restricted area in the brain, even though it's a very powerful area, and it kind of separates out humans in many cases from a lot of the other primates and things. Uh, so the interpreter basically uh, it kind of explains everything. We try, it tries to explain everything, but it has access to a limited amount of information. Uh, and particularly it has 
very limited, very little access to any information going on on the right back side of the brain because there's no direct connections between the two areas. So, so can we talk about um, a verbal consciousness as opposed to an emotional consciousness? Sure, you can uh, all the time. Uh, in fact, uh, again, this this is one of the key concepts that I try to communicate in some of the articles that I've done. And most particularly, I was trying to kind of emphasize this in the new therapist article uh, that I just did that came out last week. Uh, that basically tries to explain, uh, consistent with psychodynamic theory, that we have this verbal consciousness kind of thing, but we also have an unconsciousness, but it's not unconsciousness in the fact that it doesn't have complete control over my behavior at times. It's just that I'm not verbally aware of that kind of thing in many cases. Uh, this is the thing, uh, say, for example, you're dealing with borderline behavior kinds of stuff where a person has great difficulty regulating, they many times will kind of seem to lose control. Uh, and when they're losing control, that's actually the right frontal side actually assuming control at that point in time that's controlling the expression, even though it's an inappropriate or perhaps overly aggressive expression. Uh, and so, therefore, it's kind of like, you know, that's not really unconscious in the fact or of behaviorally. The person mm -hmm. is actually very conscious of what they're doing It's just that it's not under the verbal awareness, verbal control at the time that it's occurring. And basically, it assumes control in terms of the expression. And again, it goes back to the fact that either side of the brain and the front side can control our behavior at any given point in time. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, hence the, um, uh, you know, the, the effectiveness of um, uh, nonverbal approaches or role plays or uh, experiential approaches exactly. in dealing with those areas. Exactly. And that's the whole idea is, is the way you engage the right side of the brain or the experiential techniques as you're talking about, uh, visual imagery is very effective in terms of accessing the right hemisphere. And so a combination of experiential techniques, role reversals, role play kinds of things, uh, things such as using visual imagery, Uh, this can go a long way, and I guess I should mention one of the key things about past negative emotional memories, the ones that come back and really have a, a bad effect on us are those that we store with feelings of lack of control or somehow being personally inadequate or personally responsible. And so the more lack of control I felt at the time and the more personally inadequate I felt at the time, the more devastating those memories will be when they get reactivated. Well, using experiential techniques and using imagery, the person can actually go back, address those memories, and use that to actually establish feelings of control and adequacy kinds of things. Uh, so again, uh, if you have, if you really kind of watch and Fasha's accelerated uh, experiential dynamic therapies, uh, Greenberg's emotion focus therapy, and so forth. If you really go through and you look at all the descriptions of individuals that, you know, you see this miraculous change in in therapy, uh, then you'll see that they'll actually, when, they're, when you're dealing with whatever that subject area is, they're typically going to experience anxiety. Then it's going to give way to feelings of anger. And then if the anger is actually addressed and is expressed, then it gets to a feelings of mild sadness relief kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's done at the experiential level. That's uh, that's uh, not conceptualized at that stage. Well, and actually it's possible to do it all simultaneously. Uh, again, you don't have to do either or. Uh, you'll be presenting new schemas throughout the entire time, 
but at the same time, you're actually engaging the right hemisphere using the experiential or imagery techniques. And again, it's not a question of either or, it's and. You're doing all of this and, you know, this one and this one. Mm-hmm. And so, so to, actually, to use to use your uh, four-brain um, analogy, um, you know, one of the things that happens in, in presenting the verbal information is that the therapist might be able to pick up on the nonverbal and express it in a verbal way, uh, in a way that helps the client make the connection. Well, that and if you actually, uh, when I'm doing therapy, I'm doing a lot of imagery induction kinds of things. An example would be uh, I'm giving you pictures in your mind based upon the description. And when I basically am using words, but you now have a picture in your mind, when you form that picture in your mind of what I'm describing, then now all of a sudden we've engaged the right hemisphere mm-hmm. via the imagery kinds of things. So maybe maybe for, let's, u- let's use a, one or two specific examples to be, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, an example would be uh, in terms of an emotional restructuring session kind of thing, Toward the end, once we've already addressed that we've had emotional release and things like that, I'm trying to present a picture of the person uh, that we're talking about. And this was tied to past relationship. Let's say, for example, uh, it's a parent issue. We're talking about the parent, and I want to communicate to the individual this person did only what they were capable of doing. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, you know, they have no choice but to actually cause harm kind of thing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, therefore, as I'm kind of going through and giving the description, I can kind of say, well, this person's uh, similar to a shark swimming around in a pool of water over here. That shark is, you know, always shark. They're always eating. They're always hungry. They always have to gobble up. If I put my hand into the water to try to console the shark, it's going to bite my hand off. Mm-hmm. Not because the shark is evil or bad, but because the shark is hungry, empty, and this is all it knows to do to fill its emptiness. And so, in essence, what I've done there is I've communicated, oh, it's not that the individual, in this case the parent or the other relationship person we're talking about, that is bad. It's just that they're doing only what they're capable of doing. Right. Yet and if I engage them at that point in time and try to do something to help them out, they're going to hurt me kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's also you're not just explaining it, but I think the there's the, the metaphor um, of the shark and the hand being bitten, which is very powerful emotionally. And, and, there you uh, go. But really gets you have that, that emotional reaction. And so the, you don't want a shark to bite off your hand, and so it's not certainly not something you want, but you can also understand that it's a shark. And you're exactly right. And so you keep your hand out of the water, which then sets the stage throughout. Again, there's multiple processes going on here. But in the future, then, it's kind of like if I engage this person again, I now have this picture in my mind is you're not capable of being different than you are, but I've got to keep boundaries here. Yeah, yeah, but it's also it's interesting because it's another definition of meaning making. So that um, there you go. that image, that analogy, is actually creating a new meaning. Exactly. Again, constructivism kinds of things is going on pretty consistently throughout. Uh, but if indeed you can actually shift, and I guess the best way to look at any kind of uh, exposure procedures, the emotional restructuring thing tied to relationships, emotion focus therapy, whatever. In essence, if you're being effective at addressing these past negative emotional memories, then you've neutralized them. In other words, the memories are still there, but if they get reactivated, they don't reactivate with any kind of negative emotional sting tied to them. Mm-hmm. So you've actually, and the whole concept here is we're neutralizing these things. And so if they're neutralized, in the future, if a person then comes into contact with a person or situation that reactivates that memory, 
they find themselves feeling differently in reaction to. So to use to use the um, uh, explanation through columns, is it in a way that you've built a new column in the emotional part of the mind, the brain? Well, yeah, and it's actually the right frontal area. And again, think about the fact that if I'm using use new visual imagery to give you a picture, I'm doing that in the right back side of your mind as you're picturing this. But whenever you have a new complex column back there that represents a lot of information sensory-wise, it automatically activates a frontal column. This is basically then the action column tied to that. And this is how we can actually have what's referred to as top-down processing. I can use the front side of my brain to control the columns in the back side of my brain as I access information or manipulate that information. So what about, what about situations of trauma where say, uh, there's, uh, you know, some kind of dissociation where the memories are directly activated at a much lower level, say at the amygdala and it, uh, you know, that bypasses or goes faster than say you can access the uh, more evolved part of the brain? Okay. Well, first off, and again, this goes back to the work of Joseph Ledoux and so forth, you actually do have a direct, anytime you have sensory information coming in, uh, it can actually have a direct connection back to the lateral amygdala. That's where the information goes. And the output from the amygdala comes from what's referred to as the central amygdala. So there's different areas of it. But also, in terms of the sensory thalamus, this is your fast route you're talking about. It goes from the thalamus back over to the amygdala, which then activates uh, the sympathetic nervous system. And, we will, again, the, the direction that it goes is through the hypothalamus, and then it activates the spinal cord and then the sympathetic ganglia. However, at the same time, that same information that goes to the sensory thalamus now goes to the cortex as well, to the primary receiving area of the cortex. When it goes to the primary area receiving of the cortex, that also projects back down to the lateral amygdala. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, the fast route and the slower route through the cortex both connect right to the same area in the lateral amygdala. Okay? Mm -hmm. So now, when you form that memory then, what happens is the memory is actually formed at the cortical level. And so, therefore, that's the reason that you can have a complex sensory memory. Uh, it's not typically just you know, somebody touching my skin in a certain way, I'm also going to have the auditory things, what they said and things like that, and the intonations in their voice or the things that I saw. So we have both, you know, vision, sometimes we have smell involved, the olfactory kind of stuff. Uh, that's the reason people have trauma, say, tied to burning or there's, you know, flesh burning or something like that. Mm -hmm. They have a very strong olfactory memory that comes into play. But all the memories are actually stored at the cortical level, and the cortex then can directly activate, if you will, then the amygdala, the lateral amygdala, which activates then the physiological components. So it's not a question of memory being stored subcortically. The memory is at the cortical level, and we're talking about the time that it takes to reach the cortex. We're talking milliseconds. I mean, we're talking right. fractions of seconds here. And so that's the reason when you talk about the fast track versus the stored cortical track, uh, they we're not talking about the fact in terms of the memories being stored subcortically. We're just talking about it being cortically. And yes. kind of think, they think about that then, the really nice thing for us psychotherapists is that means they're accessible to what we do. <laughs> yes. Uh, if it was all subcortical kind of storage, then, you know, you'd have to kind of think, oh, wow, that's a, that's a boom for psychopharmacology because the only way to get to that stuff is either through psychosurgery where you go in and do something in there or you actually have to use chemicals to get to it. 
But we're talking about these complex sensory memories. They're stored at the cortical level. But what's the, the difference between, say, the memories that are fragmented, that are not integrated, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, versus memories that actually has the ability to, uh, uh, to be reconsolidated through experience? Uh, well, think about it in terms of, as I've already mentioned to you, in the left front side of the brain, that's where we do all our talking to ourselves in our head, talking to other people. When we start talking about fragmented memories, we're talking about the fact that I can't verbalize to you all the details, okay? Many times what you're going to find is, and if people do any kind of work where they process through things, after you start processing through whatever particular memory that person may have, you're going to find they pull back a lot of details that they weren't able to do initially when you started talking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a question of the memories being fragmented as much as the fact that if they get activated, it creates negative emotional states, so I start to avoid the activation of those memories in any great detail. Uh, so therefore, it's kind of like, the, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I actually have a lot more that is there that I'm not verbally aware of. In the process of this kind of thing, as we have the person go through and talk about it, uh, and, and the trauma, whatever it may be, then they will typically, if they start going through, if you, if you ask them questions and things, you'll further enhance it. You know, what, what, what was, you know, happening at the time, uh, in terms of the weather? Uh, was it sunny or was it cloudy? What kind of clothes were you wearing? Uh, were there any smells or things like that? So you can actually bring in the other sensory components and you can actually see they can many times start to recall things they didn't. And one of the things is that they get it sequentially down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like what happened next. Many times, you, when you, the first time through, things will be completely out of sequence in terms of what happened. And later, when they're kind of talking about it, they'll start, oh, well, that, that happened here, not, not over here. Uh, and so, therefore, they'll get it more sequentially. And, again, I don't want to get into too much detail in terms of the design of the brain here, but the, 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 the verbal talking thing, this is a sequential processing unit. Uh, and so, therefore, it's kind of like I get it into this, then this, then this kind of thing. Uh, so in essence, then, it's not so much the fact that the memories are fragmented in terms of where it's been consolidated. They are fragmented in terms of the information accessible by the verbal interpreter in the left front side of the brain. Right, right. And so, you know, something like uh, CYBAM or other approaches that would, um, uh, you know, bring the focus on something that's not as activated, uh, you know, is a way, a roadmap to actually getting more information into the verbal interpreter. Yeah, and also, though, any time, and this is one thing, another point I try to make is, when we're engaging in conversation or talking with a client in there, that person many times may be talking about something that is relatively uncomfortable, but they continue talking about it anyway, well, they're actually doing a form of exposure there. They're actually, you know, sitting there uh, in the process talking about these things, and that's actually, as they're doing that, that involves the right funnel area assuming control to let me sit here and process through and talk about this thing. So I'm actually forming a new funnel column uh, kind of arrangement, if you will, in the right funnel area just by sitting there talking about these uncomfortable things. Yep. And over time, we typically will find, oh, it has less power over me. I feel more, you know, like it's not as, you know, it's not ruling me as much as the fact that I got more control over it. So we do these things all the time that are going on in the process of therapy, being unaware of the fact of what's going on. But key is we want to involve as much as we can in terms of both the left frontal area and the right frontal area to have the most effective therapy. 
and to have both the right frontal and left frontal aligned with one another. Uh, you mentioned dissociation a moment ago. Uh, if somebody has some particularly, and we see this in acute stress, let's say I'm involved in a nasty uh, tornado situation and I felt like, you know, the, everything's completely out of control. Uh, immediately after, we see that acute stress kind of thing. I have so much negative emotional stuff being processed and going on in the right hemisphere that the left verbal talking side over here can't handle it. And so each frontal area has the ability to inhibit the other side. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I can verbally many times inhibit the emotional thing that's going on, the emotional expression, uh, just as the right side can inhibit the, the left frontal area, and that's that detachment, depersonalization kind of thing, where you have both front sides here actually inhibiting one another. Uh, and, again, in some of the depression literature, you'll see they talk about the EEG abnormalities that are there such that they basically see that the left front side of, uh, that's going on has decreased activity in depression. The right front side uh, seems to be more active, but both sides are actually decreased in their overall activity level. Hmm. And if you kind of think about what that really means is, it's just simply saying is, is that, well, gosh, you know, the right front side is more active here. It's cutting off some of the activity on the left. And so, therefore, this is the reason in depression uh, or, you know, particularly in high anxiety, the right being activated suppresses the left, so I can't think as clearly. My yeah. thoughts get more jumbled. I become more forgetful of names, numbers, details. I put things down, forget where I can't put them. So, therefore, it's kind of like it's inhibiting the left side. And I guess the best example I can give you are people that are test-phobic. Uh, they, they basically go in to take a test, and they logically, on the left side of the brain, they know all the information, but they've had all these past negative situations in which they've had failure in the test situation, and as soon as they go in the classroom, it activates the right hemisphere in terms of the memories of all these past times that I failed at these tests. And then what happens is it activates the right side, which now suppresses the left front side. And when I'm trying to take the test, I can't find the information. It suppresses that. Let me leave the testing situation, and all of a sudden, there's all the answers. Right, 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 right. Uh, or actually a client of mine who's a performer and has similar struggles with exactly. being on Exactly. I can't remember now. my lines kind of thing and right. so forth. Great. So, you know, as you're talking, I, you know, what comes up is not just, uh, you know, the specifics of what you're saying, but something about uh, seeing psychotherapy as a process and this, the, the, um, the the um, observations you make as being a way to give some more dimension and uh, um, uh, ways to use this process to advantage as opposed to simply that rough sense of it's a process. Correct. And that's, the, that's one of the things when I was uh, teaching some of the students and so forth. There's so many effective techniques that are out there but if you kind of read through a lot of the things, uh, emotion-focused therapy, uh, the uh, Diane Fosch's stuff and so forth, what they're doing is, is, is kind of like, you know, we know there's going to be something there, and these are the indicators when we start talking about something. Well, what I'm talking about here is, is we understand the way the brain's organized. We can be much more surgical in terms of what kinds of things. We can identify from the get-go what are these areas that we need to be addressing. Uh, like past negative emotional memories in that first session, if I see that there were issues tied to mother-father kinds of things that were influential, it's not just them. It's typically going to be things perhaps with siblings or things like a teacher that you had or being picked on by peers or things 
or this first relationship you had that was so negative. There's, there's all kinds of memories that will be there. We can kind of target and understand, hey, we have each of these things that are there. So we can go in and target those things specifically as opposed to kind of letting it evolve in the therapy situation and see what comes up. And if that's charged material, we know we need to do something with it when it comes up. Yeah. So, so there's a, a similarity. I don't mean it's the same thing, but a similarity with a diagnosis in terms of personality types uh, in the sense that you identify in a way the, the, the dynamics of, uh, that are going to be underlying the person's actions into the world. Correct. And again, that's the reason when you start looking at it, most of the time, and just about, I mean, I, I very seldom have ever had anybody come in to see me in terms of doing therapy that says that I want to, you know, get to know myself and get better. Just about everybody I see and have seen comes in because I have negative things going on that I want to turn off, deactivate. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is, is to somehow decrease the negative smooth state. Well, we all know that in the process of things, we can see a lot of meaning making that comes out of this, but the primary thing they're coming in for is to try to decrease the negative. And when you start looking at negative mood states, whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, that in essence we're talking about the fact that you can have current factors that can lead to it. Uh, I have this pain problem. I have these difficulties in my relationship. You can have past negative emotional memories that can contribute to it. If those memories get reactivated by the current day situation, then we're going to see that brings on additional negative mood. And then in many cases we'll have loss issues. If I have a chronic pain problem, then I'm typically not going to be able to continue doing the same level of activity that I used to do. So now I've had a loss of the ability to do that or loss of the ability to, you know, have my job thing. Mm -hmm. So in essence here, we can actually look at current factors, past emotional memories and loss issues and we can already have a picture in terms of the areas that we're going to need to address in terms of this negative new state they would like to see changed. Uh, so again, it gives us a means by which we can kind of start to isolate what are the areas that will need to be addressed. Uh, and I guess the other thing is, is that if indeed, as I told you about the cortical column, if that is the correct level that everything occurs in the cortex, it actually takes us in, and I'm writing a paper right now, uh, that, and I've, I've had a brief paper where I suggested this, is that we can start to understand things like Alzheimer's, uh, autism, and schizophrenia, where they're talking about these being disordered circuits in the cortex mm -hmm. leading to cognitive difficulties or memory difficulties. Well, these would actually be subsumed under the fact that uh, you're actually seeing disruption in the, the dynamic formation of columns. Okay. In other words, if I can't form the column, I can't form the memory. If the columns can't form, then I can't learn these things. Uh, if the columns don't form, then I have disjointed circuits in the cortex and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So again, we're talking about the fact that uh, we can understand these very, what we would consider severe mental illness kinds of things, but we also relate it to depression, anxiety. Again, we get to the same level. But the cortex does not function independent of the subcortical areas, including the amygdala, including the hypothalamus and so forth, including the mesolimbic uh, reward or uh, dopaminergic system and so forth. All of the things are, you know, interconnected. Uh, but the key is, in terms of therapy stuff, we are creatures where we, we have learned all kinds of things, both in our social interactions, how we control the world around us and so forth, uh, and these are the ones that occur at the cortical level. 
Right. And those are the ones that we primarily can address in therapy, including in terms of constructivist kinds of things, making meaning out of things in terms of also in terms of being able to tolerate things in terms of the mindfulness, acceptance kinds of therapies. Uh, and those kinds of things, you're actually teaching the verbal interpreter on the left to not judge the stuff going on from the right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, take, you're basically saying, hey, it's okay not to judge it. It's okay just to let it be. It is so, what it is. Kind so, of so the experience can be integrated. Exactly. Everything can be integrated. And that's the key is, is that you want to have the thinking and the feeling aligned. And if you do that, it's kind of like I have a sense of peace. And the result is I can have negative things going on in my life, but that doesn't mean I feel out of control. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I, you know, that I feel the sense of internal conflict. Uh, if I have that internal peace and the right and the front sides are actually to, to aligned with one another, I find that many times through all the tumultuous kinds of things going on, I can still have that sense of internal peace. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Bob. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. The things you're actually teaching the verbal interpreter on the left to not judge the stuff going on from the right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, take, you're basically saying, hey, it's okay not to judge it. It's okay just to let it be. It is so, what it is. Kind so, of so the experience can be integrated. Exactly. Everything can be integrated. And that's the key is, is that you want to have the thinking and the feeling aligned. And if you do that, it's kind of like I have a sense of peace. And the result is I can have negative things going on in my life, but that doesn't mean I feel out of control. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I, you know, that I feel the sense of internal conflict. Uh, if I have that internal peace and the right and the front sides are actually to, to aligned with one another, I find that many times through all the tumultuous kinds of things going on, I can still have that sense of internal peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Bob. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.